Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show Per Hegenis, the Chief Executive Officer of the IKEA Foundation. And you're in for a real treat. We're going to be covering a wide range of topics, including climate, impact measurement, collaboration with the corporate world, and the state of affairs in Ukraine, refugees and displaced persons. So without further ado, Per, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Great. So you're out there in your home country of Norway. I'm here in the UK, and, uh, and it's wonderful to see you. Even though everybody can take a listen to the episode from two years ago, why don't we kick things off by having you give us a little bit of an overview about the IKEA Foundation and IKEA more broadly? Yeah, thank you, Alberto. Um, you know, the focus on IKEA Foundation is, is, is very simple. We, we focus to help improve the lives of children and youth living in, in the global south, living in difficult uh, circumstances. And, and we believe basically there are two threats to the future of children in, in the global south. One threat is climate change, and the second threat is really poverty. So all the focus of the foundation is on these two areas, investing in making sure that we have a planet that's livable for, for the next generations, and at the same time that next generations can earn the necessary income to feed themselves and their family and live a decent life. So um, since 2009, we've been working specifically in these two areas. Uh, and uh, as a foundation, we made about 1.6 billion in grants. And currently, we support about 150 different partners with the 240 grants. So, so we broad, but we still try to be very focused. And we try to do one simple thing, and that's to help the world stay within the planetary boundaries. I'm always amazed uh, by the size of the generosity uh, of the IKEA Foundation and also how, um, I don't know if you can use the word clinical, but how clinical you are in choosing where you're going to invest uh, and uh, and exactly who those grantees might be. It's uh, There's a lot of methodology underpinning the whole thing. Let me touch a little bit on the... Um, on the greenhouse gases side, climate and so forth. I know that's an area, as you mentioned, that's very close to your heart. Uh, there's some really interesting initiatives. And also, uh, it appears a big bag of money has been generously put forward by your board uh, to help things move along even at a, at a quicker pace. What's going on on that front? Well, Alberta, you know, if we don't make sure that we have a planet that's livable for the next generations everything else becomes secondary so that's why this is such a strong focus for us and i think during the last podcast we discussed the climate and we discussed the fact that we have very little time left to cut greenhouse gas emissions by half in 2030 and the, sh the faster we can do that the better and our board is very concerned about the fact that we are not seeing the the pace that we would like to see in, in the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So the board came to us last year and said, uh, we're going to give you another 1 billion euros, which is pretty similar to dollars these days, um, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as you can in the next five years. So that was quite a challenge for us as a foundation. We've already uh, spent about 50% of our um, original budget in, in fighting 
climate change because it's an important part of what we do. Um, but uh, this basically means we double our budget and we will have an even more focused uh, efforts on, on finding ways to cut greenhouse gas emissions quickly. And cutting them quickly can be done in a number of different ways. So our challenge has been since then to find the areas where we think that is possible and we can do it at a large scale. Small scale projects are relatively easy to find, but large scale projects that have a real impact are, are more challenging. So um, you, you mentioned the opportunity that uh, we have recently <coughs> approached, uh, which ended up as a collaboration between uh, IKEA Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and, and, and later on the Bezos Foundation. And what we have done is we have set up uh, something called the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet. And the alliance has a, has a pretty significant uh, target for itself. We, uh, we all put in $500 million each into the alliance, and we went to the banks and the governments around the world and said, we're putting this alliance together, would you like to collaborate? Um, that made it possible for us to actually go to the COP26 in Glasgow last year and launch the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet with an envelope of 10 billion US dollars. Now, the alliance will do three things. The alliance will work with countries in the global south to increase access to renewable energy for people who today have no access to energy at all. That would be more than 800 million people. And for the two and a half billion who have limited access to energy, because access to energy is probably the best driver of improvement in, in people's life. And it's more about access to energy beyond actually lighting up your house and being able to watch TV, but it's about productive energy. It's about turning energy into productive use that in return increases people's ability to, to build their livelihood and increase the quality of life. So the, tar the, the alliance has three targets. One, it will try to attempt to deliver um, renewable energy to a billion people living in the global south. Secondly, it has a goal of, of a target of cutting four gigatons of carbon emissions. And a third uh, target of creating up to 150 million jobs. So. Uh, it, as you can see, the, the alliance reflects very much the strategy of, of the foundation of, of keeping a planet livable for people, also in next generation, at the same time investing in their ability to make a living for themselves and to build the economy. And the best way to build the economy, we know that, is access to energy. And we have seen that in other parts of the world where governments have put focus on, on providing access to energy and therefore lifted millions of people out of poverty. So that's an example of how we can use philanthropic money to actually leverage much larger amounts of money uh, because philanthropic money can be used to take risk. Um, and that's what phila philanthropists should do. We should take that risk that others aren't willing to take and we can potentially also de-risk investments. And by doing that, attract much more capital that would be uh, able to accelerate the development. So the Alliance will work with with countries uh, in the global south and develop a plan for how we can accelerate access to renewable energy and also replace fossil fuel energy with renewables um, as, as, as part of a strategy to get the world to net zero in 2050. Excellent. 
Now you have a private sector background. You um, you know business and and efficiencies quite well. You have a healthy sense of urgency as well. You're very aware of what's happening with climate, and uh, you know either actions taken now or, or there's going to be a, a big problem. This alliance and indeed the leveraging of philanthropic funds with other philanthropies, development banks, governments, and so forth. How quickly can such a broad alliance of stakeholders move? You know, sometimes I'm just thinking you have a lot of different stakeholders. How do you ensure that the sense of urgency that's clearly palpable from hearing you speak, that it's reflected in how quickly and uh, efficiently the alliance moves? That's a great question because we're, we all have a sense of urgency here. We need to have a sense of urgency, but setting up something like the Global Energy Alliance for People and Planet does take time. Uh, the way it operates is we've set up a separate um, organization with a board, with a, uh, a leadership council, with a CEO and an organization that will work independently to drive these opportunities. Secondly, we put out um, a call for, for action and call for proposals uh, to countries uh, at COP26. So we will work with the countries that are more most likely and most interested in, in collaborating with us to to accelerate um, this development. And I think the only way the world can get to net zero or get to 50% reduction by 2030 is with what we call the radical collaboration. We have to collaborate in a way that we have never collaborated before. And I think what the Alliance can do is to bring all the different interested parties together. You go in a country, work with regulators, politicians, utility companies, the business sector, the technology sector, and, and you invest in developing uh, access to energy in a much faster way than otherwise would have happened. And you work on the demand side, you enable a farmer to um, be more efficient and more productive in his or her use by, by applying irrigation system or electric mills. You help uh, different types of businesses to accelerate their production and their, their, their productivity, which, which in turn give families the opportunity to, to live a better life and increase their economic basis. And this is what this is all about for us. So we had COP26 not that long ago, although psychologically somehow it seems longer than, than it, farther away than, than it actually was. And today it's virtually impossible to turn on the news or read any headlines without reading about the energy crisis, the, the war in Ukraine and all of these things. And I'm wondering, in terms of the reality on the ground, because you have that visibility on what's happening on the ground, are people sort of moving a, away a little bit from the urgency of embracing renewables, renewable energy, saying, okay, well, you know, the state of affairs is just such a mess that today's not the time to focus on climate. We got to focus on, on getting energy out there uh, and lighting up houses. Well, I think that's, uh, um, that's clearly happening in, in certain areas and in the democratic countries, of course, you need to provide for your people. Otherwise, um, it's not going to go well for you as, as, as a government, as a politician. But at the same time, I do feel that the urgency in providing alternative access to energy and, and renewable energy is absolutely there and has maybe even be being reinforced and accelerated by by the situation in Ukraine. And people understand that and, and governments understand that we need to accelerate uh, the development of alternative energy sources in order for us to be energy secure on one hand, but also be contributing actively in, in reducing the, the greenhouse gas emissions. So I think 
Yes, in some cases, there will be a situation where you will just um, do whatever you can to ensure that people in Western Europe can heat their houses when the winter comes. At the same time, um, it's a very unstable access situation when it comes to oil and gas. So they will do whatever they can to accelerate the development. And I think the, the public can, can, can do a lot by putting pressure on, the, on their governments and their politicians and say, we want to see action in this area because um, otherwise our next generations won't have a future here on this planet. So I think also what you want to do is, is uh, put uh, as much focus as possible on being efficient in what you do. And if we go back to... To philanthropy, I think what, what I've done over the last uh, couple of years since we last talked, Alberto, with, with our foundation is we have significantly strengthened what we call our monitoring, learning and evaluation capabilities, because our goal as a foundation is to drive systems change. If you want to drive systems change, whether it's in climate and energy or, or in how you engage refugees, as we talked about last time, you need to take risk and philanthropies can afford to take risk. We can afford to take risk if we do it uh, responsibly and we can afford to fail because failing in itself is a good learning. So what we often do as, as, as a philanthropy is take an early investment in a good idea, building a theory of change, testing that theory of change and taking the results of that through uh, a systematic um, and a robust um, uh, MLE system around it, capture the best possible learnings out of that. And if the, if, the, if the learnings tell us what to do and what not to do, we can take those learnings and, and actually share them um, with others in addition to using them as a basis for making better investments in the future. And I think sometimes we underestimate the value of really understanding whether we are building our grant making on solid evidence. And if we don't have solid evidence, the value of actually investing in building that evidence so that we can be smarter in what we do, but also we can share that with others. So the foundation has, over the last year, spent millions in, in third-party evaluations of a number of the different investments we have made so that we can learn from, from, from those investments, but we can also share those, those learnings, those evaluation reports with whomever is interested so that we can ultimately be more efficient in how we spend the very limited amount of philanthropy money that's available for the kind of causes that, that we are focused on. Did you know, by the way, that of all the philanthropy money in the world, hmm. less than 3% goes towards climate change? I did, I did. And yet, this is the biggest issue the world is facing right now. No, that is remarkable. It's mind-boggling. It's beyond belief. I just... Um, and, 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 and it's not close to 3%. I think it's closer to the 2% mark, arguably. I love that you touched on a little bit earlier about... Um, either evidence-based, or if you don't have the evidence, investing in building that evidence, that body of evidence. Exactly. Because I think that's important too, and that's part of risk capital, right? That philanthropy is not just about only what's tried and tested, but give it a go and try to see what does work and what doesn't work. And, and you really want to make sure that you, in your monitoring and evaluation efforts, are focusing on impact. How can you create the best possible impact for the dollars that you have available. And impact is very different to outputs. I mean, you know, if you decide to invest in training a thousand teachers, that might be a good thing to do, but you have no idea whether the kids are getting smarter after the teachers have been trained. And that's really what you want to achieve. So then you will have to set up a system for how you evaluate 
the, the, the performance of the kids in the next three to five years or, or, or whatever the period is in order to, to know whether that training was sufficient or not. And if you don't do that, you can continue to do the same kind of training and it has no impact, potentially. You don't know. Mm -hmm. And tell me, so within the foundations world and even more broadly, but the IKEA foundations always held to a high, you know, it's highly regarded, again, the sheer size of the balance sheet and the endowment, you know, the, the funds that you're deploying, uh, very impressive. Uh, how do you go about the the project and program uh, monitoring, learning, evaluation? What's, you know, what's the secret sauce, as it were, if there is such a thing? And then the other point that you touched on, uh, how do you then ensure that it gets shared uh, with other interested parties, philanthropies, smaller charities, uh, in a way that's not actually just stuck in a on, on in a in a repository on your website, but actually that you ensure that people are aware that this thing, that this body of knowledge exists, that people do not need to reinvent the wheel, that you have done a lot of the legwork, the hard work for them, as it were, to try to understand what does and what doesn't work. Yeah, I know that those are two great questions. First of all, um, I think through collaboration, we automatically share. So the area that I think we have the best collaboration uh, in our foundation is in the climate change area where you see the, the philanthropies engaged in climate change work very closely together and find ways to, to, to collaborate and, and, and drive change uh, and, and drive impact at a larger scale than otherwise would be possible. Now, when we started out, I uh, can't remember if you talked about this last time, but when we started out to create something that later became the Women Business Coalition, that was an effort from our side back in 2014 to, to help ensure a better outcome in the Paris negotiations. That went on to, to, to become a body that created something called the Science-Based targets, based targets Initiative, SPTI, which is focused on the enormous role that business is playing and will be playing in getting us to net zero. And uh, the science-based targets and energy help businesses understand how they can maximize their impact with regard to net zero emissions. Because until the standard was developed, um, businesses wouldn't be able to know whether their contribution, their way of looking at cutting greenhouse gas emissions would, would take us uh, as a role to net zero. Now they know exactly what they can do. They know how to optimize. Uh, and and, and three, more than three and a half thousand companies have now joined the science-based target initiative, three and a half thousand global companies. And uh, they have approved targets and the targets are, are monitored on a, on, on a regular basis and they know exactly how they contribute. So um, we think um, right now the, the, the total impact of that is, is very significant compared to what it otherwise would have been. And I think the science-based target initiatives is something that we now have other uh, philanthropic investors contributing to, to, to because we have, the, we have the model, we have the target structure, we have the standards, and it's quickly becoming the standard for, for, for businesses. But in order to help more businesses, we need um, more capital. We need to expand the initiative and therefore other foundations have come in and have, have, come, have basically joined us up in, in this effort to build as many, get as many businesses signed up as possible. And not only to sign up and do the best thing they can, but also sign up to advocate for how other companies can, can engage in the same way. 
Indeed, indeed. And your second question was, yeah. now your second question, remind me. No, no, in terms of how to, but I think you, you touched, yeah, you addressed it anyways in, in the answer about uh, uh, just ensuring that, that, it, that the knowledge base is shared in a proactive way so that, you know, it's not just a link on your website or a white paper on your website that might or might not be reached, but taking a proactive stance saying, look, here's a public good. Let me reach out to these different segments because they may not be aware of the body of evidence we created, but they surely would benefit from it. Yeah, I think we do that in, in three ways. One is how we increasingly collaborate with others who have the same interest and want to join forces. That's one thing. Secondly, yes, we, we, we have invested millions in doing third-party evaluation that we make available to whoever wants, whether they are evaluations that tells you that we've done something good or evaluations that, that tells us that we were not probably right in what we did, but then we learned from that. I think and the third way is really that we, we, we spend quite a lot of time and efforts in, in public advocacy for what we believe in, sharing our thinking, sharing uh, our experiences, talking about what we think works, what doesn't work. So by doing that, we will be on platforms where people will, will at least be reminded that there is a body of knowledge there, increasing body of knowledge, and that can add to the rest of all the knowledge that's available in this field and, and hopefully make more people interested. Personally, I actually do spend uh, quite, a, quite a good portion of my time talking to high net worth individuals and organizations that work with high net worth individuals to get more of those interested in, 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 in investing in a, in, a, in a net zero strategy uh, rather than buying another painting for the National Gallery because um, the National Gallery won't have many visitors if we don't fix the climate problem. Uh, true, 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 true. Now, I do love the National Gallery in London. It's my favorite museum down here. But indeed, I think, you know, let's let's triage a so little bit. I. <laughs> but but I, I, the other bit that I had also inquired about, and this is, um, you know, what's the secret sauce? Is there some secret sauce for monitoring and evaluation at IKEA Foundation? I think the secret sauce is a very strong leadership in monitoring learning and evaluation and, and, and a good team that works very closely with all our program managers in setting up the grants in a way that maximizes the learning for us and and it, what again then can be shared as we uh, take the learnings from the other grants. I think that's that's for us the secret. So there's nothing there's there's nothing uh mysterious about this. You just need to have the specialists who are really good at this and you need to have an organization that responds well to this and is interested in in maximizing the impact of this kind of thinking because that probably means that we also maximize the impact on the the, the dollars invested let me touch let me go back a little bit to something you touched on earlier which i think is really important and is that the involvement of the business community the corporate world in trying to drive forward the global sustainability agenda. And personally, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this, and I think you will not get anywhere near the SDGs without the corporate engagement. And despite the, the naysayers here or there, I think there's a lot of corporates who genuinely want to do good and want to drive things forward. Now, in the case of IKEA, you have the IKEA Foundation and you have IKEA, those wonderful blue stores that everybody knows so well uh, throughout the globe. What about the knowledge sharing between the corporate side and the foundation side? And before you answer that, one of those things that I think about when I'm thinking about the corporate engagement in the sustainability agenda is that 
that philanthropy is relatively small, that governments could and can have the vision for the net zero by 2050 or earlier. But in order to have that clear roadmap of how you're going to get there, you you often need that 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 visibility, that operational visibility that only the corporates have. You know, when Keith Barr, who's the chief executive of Intercontinental Hotels, was on the show, he spoke about how they are planning to decarbonize a million hotel rooms. Now, the thing is, you need a, hot, a hotel group to sort of give you insight into what they're going to do in that vertical or in that sector. Um, so it's a bit of a long question, but how do we get the corporate and the philanthropy side exchanging information, uh, gleaning those insights from the operational world of the of the business community so that it, it benefits you and vice versa? And then hopefully also, how does it go upward to inform the policymakers who are actually, at the end of the day, voting on that legislation? Well, let me start by saying I'm, I'm very lucky to be funded by a live company. So... Um, I have that opportunity. We have that opportunity in IKEA Foundations to work very, very closely with the IKEA business and a company that has a supply chain in 50 countries and, and, uh, and has stated that they will become uh, carbon positive uh, by 2030. And a company that really drives the thinking around the fact that we have limited resources in the world, we need to be embracing the circular economy we need to cut waste and we need to do whatever we can as a business to improve our supply chain from from product design all the way to consumer and even help the consumers deliver the products back to be reused or to be recycled so thinking about this in the, in the circular way now how do we share knowledge Let, maybe i give you an example uh, from our world which is actually a good example for how I think companies and philanthropies uh, funded by companies can be uh, very complementary in, in how they work towards the same cause. Uh, you know that we have, uh, for the last 12 years, invested a lot in improving the lives of refugees, not in Europe uh, and North America, but in the global south, where countries host millions of refugees and where um, low-income countries or middle-income countries are, are responsible for that and where the, the tendency and the practice in the past has been to put refugees in camps and, and let them sit there until they can go home which on average takes at least 25 years and the rest you can just think well, our fo focus has been on making refugees self-reliant meaning uh why don't you take the the energy the 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 skills and 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 the interest of these people and and turn them into something that makes them contribute to society instead of sitting idle and do nothing and uh, we we have some really good evidence we talked about evidence we in evaluations we have some really good evidence showing how we can make significant changes in also the way refugees interact with with host communities and work together and collaborate and how countries uh, in the end embrace a different strategy that is not an encampment strategy but um, an integration strategy this requires a lot of risk-taking investments but we can do that and we did that and that also made our um, company ikea interested in the refugee cause so if you look at what's happening today is that foundation still focuses a lot of its energy on refugees um, stuck in, in, this, in, in the global south, in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, whereas um, the company has embraced different types of strategies for, 
for refugees who have made it to Europe or North America. And uh, the company has made very specific commitments to actually creating internship um, and training opportunities for refugees in Europe through their different uh, retail outlets and, and different operations and said that they will they will create uh, job opportunities for, for two and a half thousand refugees in, in Europe and North America by taking them in for, for six months, uh, give them um, a training in, in a Western European company, give them something that they can put on their CV, give them some language training, some cultural training, and then set them up for being successful in the community. Because as I said probably last time, the, the only thing a refugee wants is a new opportunity to get a new start in life. They're not there to seek benefits or or to, to, to actually live for free. Refugees are not refugees because because they decided to be refugees. They're refugees because they, they were forced to leave their country. That's the last thing you would do. Um, but if you're forced to, you have to get a new start. And the company can give them the opportunity to, to get a first step into uh, the job market in, in, in Western Europe, in this case, in North America, by actually providing that internship. It's not expensive, but if you have a big um, uh, operation like IKEA does, you have the opportunity to do this. And uh, I, last time I checked, about half of them then end up with a job in IKEA and half of them um, go and ask, apply for jobs uh, outside. But applying for a job after you've had the chance to work six months at IKEA is very different than if you have absolutely no experience except for whatever you did in, in, in your home country. country. That's, that's really, really different. Now, let me take that to the, the current um, crisis in Ukraine, you know. The, the war in Ukraine is is uh, came as a surprise to all of us, and uh, and uh, it I think it was about a week or two after the war started. The CEO of IKEA and 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 I we both went together down to to the border and were amazed by the, the welcoming attitude of in this case the, the Polish people who would take hundreds of thousands of refugees into their homes every day. And millions cross the border, as as you know from fr from the media, and and this then was more of a research for us to figure out how can we as a foundation, how can we as a company uh, help relieve the situation for the millions of refugees who are forced to flee Ukraine. So that ended up with the foundation uh, setting aside twenty five million euros to support um, the High Commissioner for Refugees and, and Doctors Without Borders to do the work they need to do in, in both inside Ukraine and in the surrounding countries. And the company um, decided to um, set aside uh, different parts of the companies, I think set aside about three, 30 million uh, in-kind in donations and support of organization to actually not only um, open up um, spaces where people can feel safe and where they could come and, and be given support, but but also the necessary uh, support of, of in-kind products, mattresses, beds, you know, other things that you need when you have nothing. And and moving on for that, the, com the company decided very quickly to, to also expand their uh, internship programs for, for refugees in those countries. So those refugees who have the opportunity to work can continue their um, professional career by uh, being given different opportunities to work in the retail outlets. So this is not difficult to do, but um, it's something that you can do if you're a company and you are 
are a company that is based on the kind of values that uh, a company like IKEA is and, and therefore the IKEA Foundation is. But it also shows you the opportunity how foundations and, and the company, as I said, can be complementary, can do different things. The company can do things that we can't do and, and, and vice versa. And um, this means that we have taken the opportunity to, to engage in the way we normally wouldn't have done in that part of the world because we focus on the global south, but this was a special situation and both the company and the, and, and, and the foundation found opportunities to very quickly engage in, in, in this escalating refugee situation that we found uh, as a result of the war. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's a situation that won't be there forever and you can go back to focusing more on the global south and, and, and uh, if I'm looking at the glasses being half full, it's great to see that interaction between the, um, the corporate side and the philanthropic side of the, of the, of the broader IKEA family. If, if I remember correctly, um, it is the case that in theory, the IKEA Foundation can tell the corporates what to do, not the other way around. Well, the foundation owns the company, that's correct. So we're not a corporate foundation in, in a traditional foundation sense. We, that's the way um, the founder set it up um, when he decided how to structure the, the business back in the 80s. And, uh, and as I said last time, he did that because he wanted to ensure that all the profits that are gained in IKEA is either used to be um, reinvested in the company to, to strengthen, build the company and expand the company and, and make the company financially strong, but also used for philanthropy so that uh, the company can, can do something good for all those people who can afford to come to the company and and, and, and buy stuff in the IKEA stores, either because they can't afford it or, or because IKEA is not present in the countries where they are. I think that's great. I mean, the number of times since you and I spoke uh, two years ago that I've mentioned that as a bit of trivia uh, with people, I'm like, you know, in the case of IKEA, uh, the, the corporates can't just tell the foundation, do this or don't do that. It's just, they, the pair has a little bit of, uh, of weight uh, when it comes to things. And are you feeling optimistic? Uh, yeah, because... You're really focusing on the two things that are on the headlines right now. Uh, the refugee refugee crisis, displaced persons, uh, war in Ukraine, and climate and energy and the, the energy crisis. Um, you have your finger on the pulse of these two things. Are you feeling optimistic that hopefully within the near, the near future we can feel a little bit less gloomy? Because I have to tell you, the news these days... <laughs> whether it's inflation, whether it's food, whether it's war, whether it's climate, energy, it's not that pleasant. And I'm an optimist. Yeah, right. I think <laughs> you have to be an optimist because uh, the alternative would almost be to give up on the world. And uh, that's not an option. I think uh, as bad as the war in Ukraine is and as tragic it is for the many people who are suffering the consequences of the war, uh, it has opened the eyes of, of the rest of the world to some very important issues that could um, work in the favor of, of driving um, an accelerated drive towards renewables, um, understanding that dependence on fossil fuel, wherever it comes from, is not the future. And that the food situation is, is, is dire and we need to make sure that <coughs> countries are, 
are self-reliant in a way that we don't see today. I mean, the beauty of the global economy was was that it worked um, like work as long as it did. Then we had a pandemic that sort of slowed down the supply chain and created a lot of issues that um, made um, this just-in-time supply chain uh, suffering badly. Then uh, having the war in Ukraine on top of that has really demonstrated to us that uh, we need to think differently about how we uh, balance uh, between being self-reliant uh, in our own region or on part of the world, but also being uh, collaborating with, with other parts of the world. Because what I hate to see is that we all know move back into our own cocoon and we want to do our own thing and we want to be self-sufficient um, on everything and we want, don't want to collaborate with, with, with the rest of the world because that would, that would definitely make life much more challenging in the global south, which ultimately is, is the part of the world that we focus all our investments and all our attention on. And I think we need to find the right balance there. And if we do, I'm optimistic because I think um, the recent events have highlighted the kind of issues that we need to focus the most on and in ensuring that we also have a strong and livable planet for, for the next generations. Yeah. So I always, as you'll remember, I always like to ask my guests for a key takeaway before we wrap up the conversation. And um, I'm keen to hear yours. What, what, uh, what's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? <laughs> Well, if you're a philanthropist, look for ways to collaborate because through collaboration, you can achieve more for your philanthropic money than otherwise would be uh, the, oh, the, the alternative. I think collaboration is absolutely key in order to fix these really significant problems that we have in the world and, and to meet those very ambitious targets that we have set for ourselves. Um, we need to collaborate in a way that we haven't collaborated before. So as I often do when I talk to, to high net worth individuals, people have lots of money and want to share that money and that wealth uh, for a better cause. I say, instead of going ahead and doing your own thing, look for the philanthropist that you, that you admire, look for the organization that you admire and try to find ways to collaborate because that means that you will probably get more impact for the money that you're willing to spend than otherwise would be the case. And it would make life easier for the organizations that you want to work with because instead of having to report 25 different organizations they might only have to report to 10 organizations and they and that means that they can focus more of the time and efforts on helping the people they're trying to help which is the purpose of their organization instead of focusing on on, on raising money and reporting on impact here 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 so here's the collaboration the spirit of collaboration and pair I have to tell you, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you back on the Do One Better podcast. Seeing you again, uh, always exceed my expectations when I speak with you. And I always have high expectations. So I'm always learning. Uh, thank you for your time and for your insight and your energy. And I look forward, hopefully, maybe not even in two years, but I look forward to uh, hosting you back in the not too distant future on the show. Well, Alberto, thank you very much for having me. And uh, as, as, as part of the efforts to try to share our thinking and our philosophy and our way of making the most impact for the money we have. Hopefully some of your listeners will also um, take some of those uh, advice and, 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 and think differently about how they spend the money in the future. And then, then it's really been worth it. 
Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Per Hegenes, Chief Executive Officer of the IKEA Foundation. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. I thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you. So thanks so much for downloading and I'll catch you next week.